When you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. Then you will be blessed. You'll be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. With your prayers and the Holy Spirit's power, I will speak this morning. Welcome to the party. Welcome to the party. My friends, the gospel lesson that we read for your hearing comes from the Gospel of Luke. Luke is known as the parabolic gospel. Parables are short metaphoric tales that are full of moral meaning. And while parables are found in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and John, Luke contains the vast majority. Eighteen parables, in fact, are unique to this Gospel. We find one such parable in Luke 14. The Bible tells us that Jesus is attending a dinner party. The party is at the home of an important religious figure, a leading Pharisee. Pharisees were well respected, they were well regarded, and this party was in the home of a leading Pharisee, the most respected among the respected. This is why the Bible tells us that people began to make their way around the dinner table. As they were making their way around, Jesus noticed something. Everyone began moving toward the seat of honor. We all know how it works. The closer you can get to the highest seat of honor at a party, the closer you can get to the coolest kid in the crew. The closer proximity you are in relation to the leading personality, the more your own perceived cultural capital will rise. Seeing this, Jesus decided to tell the group a parable. A parable about humility and about hospitality. When you go to a party, don't try to sit in the highest place but rather sit in the lowest. You never know when somebody's going to walk in the door and outrank you. So rather than being embarrassed when the host says, please, I need you to get up and move because I need a special guest to sit here, the host will be able to say to you, my friend, I saw you come in. Come on up and sit near me. Oh, Jesus, Jesus isn't just being Emily Post here trying to offer etiquette. But this is actually a lesson on life and living that extends much farther than a dinner party. It extends to the rest of our lives. Why? Because Jesus says those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. I like the way Ralph Waldo Emerson put it. He said, a great person is always willing to be little. Why? Why? Because honor, like respect, is earned by our deeds, not claimed by our words. 
Put another way, if you and I have to tell someone how good we are at something, or if we have to tell somebody that we're in charge, most likely we are not. <laughs> so Jesus, Jesus turns to the host then and he says, listen, I want you to do something. When you give a party, when you give a party, don't just invite your friends and rich neighbors who can repay you for the favor, but rather invite the poor. Invite those without social status or stature, those with disabilities, cultural or physical, and you, my friend, will be blessed. Now, it would be appropriate for us to read this parable as a defense of the poor and a denunciation of the rich and powerful. Jesus here is critiquing social arrangements that replicate themselves by our behaviors. The privileged look after the privilege. The rich congregate only with the rich, and the poor remain marginalized and ignored, thus rendered invisible. This is how power and privilege reproduces itself. This is how injustice hardens and concretizes, not because anyone is working actively to deepen inequality, but quite often it's because no one is working actively against inequality. So yes, it's appropriate to read this parable as a defense of the poor and an indictment of the privileged. But though appropriate to read this parable in this way, I also think that it might be too easy for us to read this parable in this way. I wonder, I wonder if we might be able to look at this parable in a different way. Not in a way that simply indicts the privileged partiers and demonstrates pity for the poor, but one that both implicates and shows compassion for all parties involved in the narrative. For there's one thing that I know to be true. Each one of us, no matter what our class status, no matter what our privilege and power, no matter what may be our lack of access, each one of us is given to goodness and given to greed. Each one of us is given to selfless love and selfish lust. And each one of us, no matter what side of the track you were born on, can demonstrate altruism and empathy one day just as you can and I can demonstrate extreme avarice and ugliness the next day. Life's complicated like that. And this is why I want to use our spiritual imaginations today to flip the script on this story. Let's look at this story in a different way. Well, the Pharisees, they invite Jesus to a dinner party. Verse 1 of the chapter says that they were what? They were watching him closely. Ah, oh, they were watching him closely. This makes sense. Why? Because he was the new kid in town. He was the new upstart preacher. People were singing his praises. He was known for his amazing teaching ability. He was known for his brilliant mind. He was known for the ways that he could draw a crowd. And the Pharisees, they wanted to see him up close. They wanted to see him in action. Maybe the party host, a very important person, thought, you know what? 
we should invite this Jesus. Maybe he could become one of us. Maybe another thought, we should put him on our dinner list for future gatherings. See, these weren't bad people. This is just the world that they had grown accustomed to. It's the world that quote unquote worked for them. It's the world that they knew. And so whenever they hear about somebody who's popular, somebody with a growing acclaim, hey, let's make sure we invite him to the party. He might be our kind of people. In fact, maybe several people were quite impressed when Jesus started teaching his parable and giving instructions on caring for the poor and for the least of these. Recall, these were religious leaders. These are smart people here. These are people that are well-versed in their faith tradition. They knew the teachings of Moses and the other prophets. They grew up in synagogue hearing, welcome the stranger in your midst. Why? Because you were once strangers in Egypt. They grew up hearing, woe to those who trample upon the heads of the poor. And they knew the proverb, be compassionate for the weak and powerless, because in doing so, you might be entertaining angels. So when Jesus started his parable, I can imagine many nodding their heads in approval. Others probably looked at him with pride and quite sincere and sincere affirmation. Great sermon, Jesus. You really blessed my soul this morning. But just because Jesus' words impressed, that doesn't mean that his words will move people to act. To the contrary, when the real demands are made upon us, when moral challenge calls for personal sacrifice, or when religious ideals demand ethical action, all of a sudden, many of our orientations begin to shift. This is probably what happened at this dinner party. Can't you see it? The same sermon that impressed Jesus' listeners probably made them apprehensive when he suggested so now let's get up from our seats and see what we're going to do about it. The same sermon that had dinner guests impressed with his theology, they found it inspiring in his delivery. They appreciated his homiletic elocution. It became offensive when Jesus asked, so now what are our next steps? You know how it works, you know how we are. We're great when it comes to what other people should do. <laughs> but we're not so enthusiastic when it comes to our relinquishing our own positions of privilege and power. Oh, I can hear somebody at the dinner party saying, I, I hear you, Jesus, I get you. But you see, you don't understand. You don't understand, Jesus. You know, I worked hard to get here. I spent years trying to get invited to this party, and now you're telling me I'm just supposed to give up my spot to somebody who hasn't put in the work that I've put in? Come on, Jesus, you got to be kidding me. Oh, I hear another saying, uh, I don't have anything against anybody else, Jesus. 
I got a lot of love and respect for everybody. And I think everybody should have equal access to the table. Sure, we'll welcome somebody else in if they can hack it. But remember, this is our space. Somebody else probably chimed in. Well, Jesus, you know, uh, this is our right to assemble here with and whom we want to congregate with. I agree, everybody you mentioned is important, but I don't want to be forced to do anything, Jesus. This is our space. I think you might be pushing too fast. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? You can look at the lights and say amen. <laughs> like many of us, like many of us, no matter how much the dinner guests agreed with Jesus in theory, they were apprehensive putting their moral ideals into practice, particularly if it costs them something. This is why I suspect that Jesus wasn't just taking pity on those outside of the dinner party, the poor, the crippled, and the blind. I assume that Jesus also had strong feelings of pity for those sitting around the table. People who put so much stock in their position at the party. People who clung so tightly to their perceived rank and status that they would rather forsake their moral commitments than forego the thing that they've wrongly based their sense of value and their sense of worth upon. These dinner guests are like many of us. How many of us cling to our associations, cling to our perceived access, cling to those who we think will bring us honor and respect, yet we sacrifice love, openness, and compassion for others at the altars of our false security. We rank cultural markers above our moral commitments. We place fragile associations above enduring values. I've worked hard to get here. You want me to just let anybody in? Invite anybody to the party? Then what would that mean for me? I earned my spot. I'm a Harvard graduate. I demonstrated my commitment. I'm a member, I am, of Kappa Alpha Psi. I'm a member of Delta Sigma Theta. I'm a member of the Boule, of the Lynx. I paid my dues. I'm a member of the Country Club. I'm a member of the Eating Club. I'm a member of the Final Club. That's who I am. And you're asking me to give that up. God's probably looking at many of us now with the same pity and compassion that Jesus directed toward the people at this party. Poor people. If we could only step back, Jesus is probably thinking, if we could only step back slow down and reevaluate our priorities. We may just see that the things that we're angling for and the things that we're holding on to, they neither fulfill nor do they necessarily bring us real joy. And that's why the question, the question that I have for you is the question that I often ask myself. 
When I leave this campus, when we leave this campus, when we retire from our various professions, even when we leave this world, how do we want to be remembered? More importantly, what experiences do you and I think that we will be most likely to remember? Well, I can tell you I've sat long enough with enough graduating students from this college. I've sat long enough with enough people who are in hospice care just waiting for the bell to toll for them to have a pretty good idea of what people at the end of their particular time find important. In hindsight, very few people take much stock in the moments that secured their social status. Few relish in their memberships, their honors, or their class rank. But rather, most people recall the opportunities when they were able to be of service to someone else, when they were able to assist others, when they were able to gain, not based on what they could acquire, but based upon what they were able to give to another. People are most blessed when they're able to be a blessing. Oh, I got several examples that come to mind. Can I tell you about a highly decorated graduate from a few years ago? He had all kind of access, honor, and privilege here on this Harvard campus. He was an all-Ivy League football player, league defensive player of the year, in fact. He was a member of an elite final club, and today he even wears an NFL uniform. Yet when you talk to him about life at Harvard, he rarely calls accolades from football. He rarely mentions his access to elite circles. In fact, what he does, he fills your ear with stories about the Harvard Square homeless shelter. Not only did he volunteer at least one night per week, even during season, he often spent the whole night at the shelter. He will tell you that he found joy and purpose in getting to know and eating alongside shelter occupants. And of all the awards, banquets, dinner parties, and velvet rope bashes this young man attended, he believes that his most meaningful meals were the ones that he served to others. Similar may be said of another recent Divinity School graduate. She came to Harvard with many accolades after having majored in religious studies at Emory University. Her intelligence was intimidating. Her knowledge base was expansive. Thus, her capacity to be successful here at Harvard was assured. Yet if you ask her today what was her most important time at Harvard Divinity, she'll tell you two things. First, she'll tell you about her course with the Harvard Prison Project inside of the Massachusetts Women's State Prison. Second, she'll tell you about her work with the Grants Committee here at the Memorial Church that provide assistance, financial aid, to social service providers throughout the greater Boston area. At the Framingham prison, she learned that alongside and she learned from female inmates, inmates many of whom are guilty of lesser crimes than many of us here commit daily. And similarly, 
Her work with the Grants Committee introduced her to those working on the front lines to battle food scarcity, mental illness, and domestic violence throughout our community. Through service, she told. She realized why her education here really mattered. The point is this, my friends. Life is not about what we can acquire and control. Life is about what we can create and share. And creativity is born when you and I stretch beyond the confines of comfort in order to connect with other people, in order to explore other places, in order to pursue opportunities that make uncomfortable demands upon us. This is why Jesus tells the people, don't get too comfortable in your seat of privilege around the table. For comfort among yourselves and comfort among your own is the enemy of intellectual creativity. This is why Jesus says, don't become too complacent among the table that's already been set for you. Why? Because complacency is the enemy of compassion. As I prepare to take my seat, some of you know my friends, Pat and Tammy McLeod. They're the crew chaplains here at Harvard. Pat and Tammy have an incredible son named Zach. Zach who suffered a traumatic brain injury some years ago on the football field. It's left Zach physically and mentally impaired even as his spirit and positive energy can still light up any room. Recently, I had the privilege of reading a draft of Pat and Tammy's personal memoir that should be coming out in the next year. It's entitled Hit Hard, Football, Family, and Faith. And it introduces us to Zach before the accident and before the waves that this terrible tragedy transformed their entire family. One story in the book stood out for me. And I think it captures the point of Jesus' parable here. It took place in Mamalodi, South Africa. Students every night, I've been on many occasions, you know, students gather at night for a Bible study reflection after dinner. They gather there with Pat, who's the leader, to discuss effective discipleship. Well, over the course of a couple of days, Pat noticed that Zach kept arriving late to discipleship class. When Zach showed up late the third night, Pat took him aside to chastise him. He said, what kind of example are you setting for others if you're my son and you can't even arrive on time? Zach then shared where he had been. Zach had been washing dishes alongside the South African women who cleaned up after all of the guests at the conference center. And while he washed each night, the women started teaching him traditional Bantu worship songs. Pat confesses when he found out that he was both proud of his son and he was convicted by the Holy Spirit. For he, Pat, was teaching a class on discipleship while his teenage son 
was actually living the life of service and sharing that Jesus taught his disciples. Within a few nights, the formal class was canceled. Why? Because in its place, all of the students began helping these women clean the dining room and the kitchen as they all learned and sung Bantu songs together well into the wee hours of the night. This is the point that I want you to take away from Jesus' parable. If you really want to be blessed, let's be a blessing. If you really want to gain something, don't be afraid to give something. And if you really want to feel like you belong to the party, then go welcome somebody else. Let the church say amen.